Thank you for how your spirit has been with us this week so far, and I pray that you would continue to be in our midst and to pour out your blessing upon us. Give me the words to speak this morning that will be what is needed for each one of us. And again, we remember those who are in harm's way in Puerto Rico, especially right now. May you provide your protecting hand for those who are there. So be with us now this morning, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for our morning meetings, we've been going through the sanctuary message in the book of Revelation, and our first presentation looked at the overview of the movement of Jesus from the holy place to the most holy place through the churches, the seals, and the trumpets. Yesterday we spent time looking at the work of Jesus in the most holy place as it relates to the message he gives to the Laodicean church. Today we are going to look at the seals and the emphasis will be again on what is taking place in the most holy place during the work of the seals. And so we are going to look briefly at the seals, and then we're going to look especially at the most holy place aspect of the seals. I'm going to start with a statement that has special relevance for today and for the time we are living. And this is Testimonies, Volume 9, page 11. We are living in the time of the end. The fast-fulfilling signs of the times declare that the coming of Christ is near at hand. Amen. The days in which we live are solemn and important. The Spirit of God is gradually but surely being withdrawn from the earth. Amen. Plagues and judgments are already falling upon the despisers of the grace of God. The calamities by land and sea... The unsettled state of society, the alarms of war are portentous. They forecast approaching events of the greatest magnitude. The agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crisis. Great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. Wow, it's as if Ellen White wrote this statement yesterday. I mean, how much more do we need to see to believe that Jesus is coming soon? I mean, Hurricane Maria is pounding Puerto Rico right now. Mexico City was blasted by an earthquake yesterday. There's already been Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Harvey, flooding in Houston. Islands in the Caribbean have been destroyed by Hurricane Irma. Now Hurricane Maria is coming. And we see that the Spirit of God is being withdrawn from the earth. And in that context, we see that the seals in the book of Revelation provide a roadmap to understand what takes place as the Spirit of God is being withdrawn from the earth. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 6 as we start our study through the seals. So there's seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. We are looking at the seven seals today. 
and the seals provide a historical timeline to know where we are in the history of the world. So let's look. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the first five seals. I suspect that those of you who have studied the book of Revelation have a, a basic grasp of this, but basically if you look through the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 6, you have four horses, the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse, and they just describe various phases chronologically of the Christian church. We have the conquering pure apostolic Christian church described as the white horse, and the time period for that is from 31 to 100 A.D. Then we have the red horse, which describes the persecuted church, and that goes from about 100 A.D. to 313 A.D., and that culminates with the 10 years of persecution under the Roman emperor Diocletian. Then you have the black horse, and that starts with the third seal in verse 5. This represents the time that the church begins to go into apostasy. This is from about 313 A.D. to 538 A.D. When you study this period of time, this is when the doctrine of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans came into the Christian church, and it was held by the Christian church. Those of you who have studied the doctrine of the Nicolaitans understand LMI says that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Or in other words, we use God's grace as a license to keep sinning. And so the early Christian church held that doctrine. So that's the time of, of apostasy. And then by the time we get to the fourth seal, we see the pale horse. This is the great falling away. This is the time where the Christian church is described as a sick, pale horse. And when you study the, the churches in connection with the seals, this is the time when the woman Jezebel is in the church. And so this is the time of great apostasy. Now, I have this going from 538 to 1374 because it was in 1374 that John Wycliffe, one of the first reformers, comes onto the scene, and he turned out to be one of the great reformers. He translated the Bible into English. He spoke out against transubstantiation or of the Mass. He was ahead of even some of the reformers who came after him. And so the Protestant Reformation began around 1374, and then you get to the fifth seal in verse Verse 9, where the souls cry out under the altar, in verse 10, how long, O Lord, till you judge and avenge our blood. Then we get to the sixth seal. And the sixth seal begins in verse 12. And this is where we're going to pick things up. So we've gone from 31 AD all the way down through the time of the Protestant Reformation. And then in verse 12 it says, I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll 
when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? All of a sudden, we've just been kind of going along, marching through history, 3180 to 100, and then 100 to 313, 313 to 538, 538 to 1374. And then, when the sixth seal opens, there's this great earthquake, and we go through this earthquake, and we go through the dark day, and we go through the falling of the stars, and the next thing we see is the coming of Jesus in the clouds, and the wicked are calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. Now let me say something to you here. Lest you think we're going to be here for another thousand years, the signs of the coming of Jesus began 262 years ago when the Lisbon earthquake came. So we are, we are very, very close, potentially, to the coming of Jesus. We understand from history that the Great Lisbon Earthquake occurred on May 1, 1755. I'm not sure that they have a Richter scale rating for that earthquake. Maybe someone does. I haven't looked it up, but it was a massive earthquake. And in fact, I've read a book about it. There were actually two great shocks that hit the city, and then a tsunami came in and wiped out the city, um, and then fires spread throughout the city afterward. The earthquake was felt throughout Europe and as far away as Africa. And it was the greatest earthquake that had been seen to that point in Earth's history. This was a clear sign of the beginning of the signs that would take place before Jesus comes again. And in fact, these signs are also found in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can find it in Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30, Mark 13, verses 24 through 26, Luke 21, verses 25 through 28, and even Joel chapter 2, verse 31, describes the, the dark day where the moon turns to blood. This is mentioned four other times in Scripture before we come to the book of Revelation. It's there that many times for a reason. God wants us to be aware of the fact that these signs have great prophetic significance. So the, dark, the great Lisbon earthquake occurs on May 1, 1755, and just 25 years later, on May 19, 1780, we have the great dark day, which I preached about this shortly before the great American eclipse. We were fortunate enough to live just about two hours from the center line of totality, so we drove to my hometown where I grew up to experience the eclipse. By the way, did anyone get a chance to see the, the, the eclipse in its totality? That's neat. So some of us thought, you know, just so you know, and this is a side point, if you were in 99% eclipse territory, the difference between 99% eclipse and totality was the difference between night and day. It was like if, if you got 99% coverage, it was still bright outside. That's how powerful the sun is. But when we were in the totality, the sun 
was getting darker and darker, and then all of a sudden you could look, and it was like the sunset was coming over the entire horizon, and then everything went black. It was incredible. And then we were there, it was about two and a half minutes where we were, um, two minutes, 35 seconds, and about 15 seconds before the sun came back out, the cows started mooing. They were confused. But here's the thing. Eclipses happen as often as every 18 months somewhere in the world. That is not the dark day. It lasted for two and a half minutes. That was pretty impressive. We, we enjoyed it. And in fact, there's going to be another eclipse in seven years that's going to last for four minutes. And it's going to go through Texas and Arkansas. And, and it won't be that far from where we live. We'll probably go see it again. But four minutes is nothing to what the great dark day was. Around 9 o'clock, the sky started to darken, and by 10 o'clock, it was pitch black. The animals came back to their homes. Everyone had to stop their work, and it stayed dark for the remainder of the day. This was not just an eclipse. The, the moon can't block the sun for an entire day. It can only do it for a few minutes at, at a given point. This was a significant prophetic event. And then at nighttime, when it was time for the moon to come out, the moon had the appearance of blood, just as Joel 2.31 says that it would. This was a significant event. Then 53 years later, the stars fell from heaven, November 13, 1833. Now, interestingly, when you look at the seals, you have the Great Lisbon Earthquake and the falling, or, or, sorry, the dark day and then the falling of the stars. The very next thing that you see after the falling of the stars is the coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. And we are... Last I checked, from the falling of the stars, 184 years. So you have 25 years between the Lisbon earthquake and the dark day. You have 53 years from the dark day to the falling of the stars. And here we are in 2017, 184 years and counting between the falling of the stars and the coming of Jesus. And that's the next thing that's described in the seals. Now, what's implied and what's missing in the seals is 1844 and the beginning of the judgment. But... John the Revelator and the Holy Spirit as it's put together is giving you this understood, implied understanding that you know that after 1833, just 11 years later, Jesus goes into the most holy place and after that, Jesus is going to come back. So the seals are giving us a chronology of what happens to the Christian church from the time of Christ to the time of the second coming and these great signs in the heaven and on the earth with the the earthquake and the dark day and the falling of the stars, the signs that Jesus gave himself in the gospel accounts, those were significant prophetic events identifying that we have moved into the last days of earth's history. And yet the question could be asked, why are we still here? Now, I know we've been talking about this in a variety of ways throughout this week. But the seals gives us a clear picture of why we are still here. 
after we see the coming of Jesus, where it's almost as if you can see Jesus coming in the clouds because the heaven is rolled back as a scroll, and then the wicked are calling for the rocks to fall on them, and they're saying the great day of the wrath is come, of the Lamb is come, and who shall be able to stand? You know, when's the last time you've seen an angry lamb? That's a weird phenomenon. But apparently, the appearance of the gentle Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world scares the wicked to death, and they want the rocks to fall on them. So you almost see Jesus in the clouds at the end of the sixth seal, and then we come to Revelation chapter 7, which is an interlude, and Scripture says, And after these things... I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, what we're looking at is especially what is taking place in the most holy place during the time of the seals. Ellen White says in early writings, page 36, I saw that the four angels would hold the four winds until Jesus' work was done in the sanctuary, and then will come the seven last plagues. So when you come to Revelation chapter 7, Revelation 7 steps back a little bit, and it's between the falling of the stars and the coming of Jesus, because the four winds are being held, and that is taking place while Jesus is doing his work in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. So after 1833 and the falling of the stars, Jesus then goes into the most holy place, and that work must finish first before the wicked of the earth call for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them. And if we keep reading in Revelation 7... Verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Ellen White says in early writings, page 38, I saw four angels who had a work to do on the earth and were on their way to accomplish it. Jesus was clothed with priestly garments. He gazed in pity on the remnant, then raised his hands and with a deep voice of pity cried, My blood, Father, my blood, my blood, my blood. You know, Jesus has pity on us. Thanks the Lord that Jesus doesn't treat us the way we would treat us. Amen. Then the quote goes on. Then I saw an exceeding bright light come from God, who sat upon the great white throne and was shut all about Jesus. Then I saw an angel with a commission from Jesus swiftly flying to the four angels who had a work to do on the earth and waving something up and down in his hand and crying with a loud voice, Hold, 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 hold until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. See, the winds could have been released a long time ago, but Jesus is pleading his blood to the Father, and he's saying, my people are not ready yet. Hold the winds until the servants of God are sealed so that they will be ready when the time comes. You know... 
I don't think we have the foggiest clue as to how bad it's going to be when the four winds are released. You know, Ellen White has a statement, I don't have the, the quote with me today, but she says that every city will be overturned by the hand of God when the Lord arises to shake terribly the earth. Every city when the four winds are being released. Now, we have been watching with interest the last few weeks. I mean, you know, we've seen some crazy things. For those of us who are old enough to remember 9-11 and onward, it's a little bit amazing to me that we've lived long enough now that we have children that don't have any recollection of September 11, 2001. But those of us who were alive and in our adult years on 9-11, remember where we were when we heard the news. I was in California in my second year of medical school, and of course California's three hours behind the East Coast, so the first plane hits the first tower at 8.48 Eastern time. I was sound asleep and didn't know that anything had happened until one tower had already collapsed, and then one of my friends calls me and says, you've got to get to a TV and see what's happening in New York City, and I mean, I'll never forget the feeling that hit me. And I was convinced then that Jesus was coming very, very, very soon. I wasn't even sure I would finish medical school. And yet here we are all these years later. But we've been watching, you know, just the last few weeks where Hurricane Harvey roars ashore as a Category 4 hurricane in Texas. And due to these weird weather patterns, it does this loop around the Houston area and just hangs out for five days. And there was, I forget how many trillions of gallons of water dumped on Texas and then Houston flooded. And they had never seen anything like that. It's a once in a lifetime flood for the city of Houston. And then just as Houston was getting its bearings and trying to figure out what had just hit it, Hurricane Irma starts roaring through the Caribbean as a Category 5 hurricane with winds of 185 miles an hour, and it totally blows over the small island of Barbuda and completely destroys the small island of about 1,700 people. There was a few deaths. Thankfully, most people survived, but the island became uninhabitable. And it roared up through the Caribbean. It barely missed Puerto Rico that time. And Florida went into panic mode because forecasts suggested that a Category 5 hurricane could come right into the southern peninsula and spend 30 hours over the, the main peninsula. Now, not as a Category 5, but starting off as a 5 and potentially staying as a 3 all the way up the island. Friends, if that had happened, the mass devastation that Florida would have seen would have been on speakable. But God in his mercy slowed the hurricane down before it hit the peninsula. And yes, there was some destruction, but it wasn't what it could have been. And just when Irma gets over, all of a sudden, here comes Hurricane Maria. And it goes over the island of Dominica and causes great damage. And as we speak right now, it is blowing over Puerto Rico as a Category 4 hurricane with winds of 155 miles an hour. You know, Ellen White says something very interesting about hurricanes and the four winds.
sins. She quotes Revelation 7, verses 1 through 3. We've just read that. And then she says, from this vision, we can learn why so many are preserved from calamity. If these winds were allowed to blow upon the earth, they would create havoc and desolation. But the world's intricate machinery is running under the Lord's supervision. Now listen to this. This should cause you to wake up just a little bit as I read this next sentence. Hurricanes threatening to break forth are held under control by the regulations of the one who is the protector of the trembling ones that fear God and keep his commandments. The Lord holds back the tempestuous winds. He will not suffer them to go forth on their death mission of vengeance until his servants are sealed in their foreheads. Did you hear that? She says that God is not allowing these hurricanes to go forth on their death mission of vengeance until the servants are sealed in their foreheads. Now this should cause you to wake up perhaps just a little bit. How many hurricanes need to blow through the Caribbean for you to realize that the winds are starting to be released? This is Manuscript Release, Volume 19, page 279. Manuscript, Volume 19. Manuscript Release, Volume 19, page 279. Now, this is my conviction on this. I am not saying that this means that probation is about to close. What I am saying is, is that these hurricanes are a sign or a test to see if God's people are ready to be sealed. And if we are ready to be sealed, we're going to keep seeing more and more of this. About what you, the next page... In this statement, Ellen White says, local disturbances in nature are permitted to take place as symbols of that which may be expected all over the world when the angels loose the four winds of the earth. The forces of nature are under the direction of an eternal agency. Science and her pride may seek to explain strange happenings on land and on sea, but science fails of tracing in these things the workings of providence. Science fails of perceiving that intemperance is the cause of most of the frequent accidents so terrible in their results. So the, Ellen White has another statement where she says science seeks to explain all these things and you know people are starting to say oh well it's probably global warming that's causing all of this. The true reason is that the angels are releasing the four winds. And then the Pope's going to come onto the scene and say, oh, we have global warming. We need to have a day of rest so that we can cool the planet. Are you kidding? So a day of rest is going to cool the planet. Yeah, that's, uh, anyway. So, and now look, I'm not here to speak for or against global warming. But I, I see that as a distraction to our message as God's people. But people will use that as a reason to push for a day of rest. But again, to me, let me read this again. This is Manuscript Releases, Volume 19, 279. Hurricanes threatening to break forth are held under control by the regulations of the one who is the protector of the trembling ones that fear God and keep his commandments. The Lord holds back the tempestuous ones. He will not suffer them to go forth on their death mission of vengeance until his servants are sealed in their foreheads. Boy, when I see three major hurricanes within a few weeks, it just has to, it makes me wonder and it gets me thinking, are we close? to the servants of God being sealed. 
Friends, it's time to stop playing games with God and say, you know, maybe next year I'll put my idols away. Maybe next year I'll give my heart to God. I'll just keep playing church for now. How much longer can God in his mercy warn us that he is coming soon? Now, what we see in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, is that the winds are being held until the servants of God are sealed. And we see that the servants of God are the 144,000. And when God has his people who are ready, he will then move forward with the releasing of the four winds. And Ellen White has a statement about the sealing of God's people. It's found in Testimonies, Volume 5. And it starts on page 207. And I want to read that statement for you. In fact, I would encourage you if you have a chance, to read the whole chapter if you can. Um, it's pages 207 to 216. And I'm going to pick it up. This is the chapter on the seal of God. Because we're talking about what is taking place during the seals. Again, we're going through the book of Revelation, and we're focusing on the most holy place work, and the churches, the seals, and the trumpets. And so as we look at the seals, we see that from the most holy place, that which is taking place in the most holy place in the book of Revelation, with respect to the seals, is the work of God trying to seal the 144,000. So Ellen White's... This is the chapter, The Seal of God, chapter 23 in Testimonies, Volume 5. It starts on page 207. And this is what Ellen White says. She's quoting the book of Ezekiel. She says, He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the rider's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they begin at the ancient men which were before the house. Now that's in the book of Ezekiel. We're going to go there. Then she says, Jesus is about to leave the mercy seat of the heavenly sanctuary to put on garments of vengeance and pour out his wrath in judgments upon those who have not responded to the light that God has given them. Let's go to the book of Ezekiel. She was quoting the first verses of Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, Ezekiel chapters 8 and 9 are together, and I might add that the shepherd's rod, for those of you who have ever run into them, have hijacked these two chapters, and they say that we will be the destroying angel to come and to, to put to death the wicked Adamus when the time comes. Don't get into that stuff. God is going to do that work. He's not going to use the shepherd's rod. But when you look at Ezekiel 8 and 9, 
Ezekiel is taken off into vision when he is in captivity in Babylon, and he is taken in vision and is shown what is happening among God's people who have stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, it just so happens that Ellen White is shown in vision that what Ezekiel saw about God's people in Jerusalem while the majority were in captivity in Babylon, well, what that applied back then applies to Adventists at the time of the close of probation. So Ezekiel 8 and 9 has special relevance to God's people as we are living during the time that Jesus is in the most holy place trying to seal his people. And so we're going to look briefly at what Ezekiel sees in vision. And when we get to verse 3, this is what Ezekiel sees in chapter 8. And he put forth the form of an hand and took me by a lock of mine head. And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provoketh to jealousy. So Ezekiel sees the north gate of Jerusalem and he sees an image by the north gate that is provoking God to jealousy. God has the right to be jealous over his people. And in the Ten Commandments he says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. You know, if you are married to someone and they're not jealous over you, there's something wrong with your relationship. If they're just saying, oh yeah, just come by every once in a while, you know, just check in at the house every so often, maybe once a week, a couple of hours, that's fine, and then just go and do whatever you want. And we do that to God and think he's not jealous. But there's an image of jealousy at the north gate that's provoking God to jealousy. We don't know exactly what this image was, but it was enough to cause jealousy of God toward his people. And you would say, wow, that's an abomination that God would be jealous about an image that is placed on the north side uh, of Jerusalem at the north gate. But he says there's going to be greater abominations than this. So we go to verse 7. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then said he, so now he can look through a hole into the sanctuary, into the temple. Then he said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them seventy men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Here you have in the temple of God all the idols of the house of Israel. And it's in the context of a worship service where they have a censer in their hand and, and incense is ascending up. And so they're saying, God doesn't care how we worship him. We can bring our idols in to the house of God and we can call this worshiping and praising God. 
And God is saying, this is an abomination. Verse 12 says, Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients do in the house of Israel, or of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not, for the Lord hath forsaken the earth. You know, there can become the, there can become this attitude in the church that says, you know what, we've been preaching for how long now that Jesus is coming again? That message has lost its relevance. We need to develop a culturally relevant worship service that appeals to the idolatry of the world around us so that they will feel comfortable in our house of worship so that their idols out there will be found in here so that we will all just get along and worship and praise God the way we feel comfortable in the context of our culture. And it's not just worship. This is talking about the secrets of the ancients, the idols that they had in their lives. So it's not just worship, but it's also all the abominable idols that the so-called leaders of God's people had in the house of God. And you would think, wow, this is really bad. But verse 13, he says, Turn thee yet again, and you shall see greater abominations that they do. Verse 14, Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Now, you may not know who Tammuz is, but let me just explain this briefly. There was this Babylonian goddess Ishtar, and legend among the Babylonians had it that the goddess Ishtar had a miracle virgin birth and the name of the son was Tammuz. Now that should ring a bell. Virgin birth, Messiah. This is before Jesus came the first time. And so here you have God's people weeping for a false Messiah. They were tired of waiting for the real Messiah. Most of their people are in captivity. When's the true Messiah ever going to come? So let's worship a mythical Babylonian Messiah that has mythically already come. Now you may say, man, we're not like that today. Or are we? The Jews were looking for a certain kind of Messiah. And when the time for the coming of the Messiah was delayed and delayed and delayed, they turned to a false Messiah rather than the worship of the true. Could it be that as we have waited for the coming of Jesus, rather than worshiping the Jesus of the Bible, we are worshiping a Jesus that we have created in our own mind that doesn't exist in Scripture? that we've created a Jesus that the Babylonians have created a theology for, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Have we fallen into a trap of accepting Babylonian theology with respect to the worship of the true Jesus? saying that he will cover us in our sins and allow us into heaven while we're still sinning. But that wasn't the last abomination. 
verse 15, Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they worshipped what? The sun. They're not worshiping God, they're worshiping the sun. And that should have your antenna up. Friends, this is a prophetic sign, an application of what is going to happen to Seventh-day Adventists. Here Jesus is in the most holy place trying to seal the servants of God with the seal of the living God. And yet if you were to look an Adventism today, you have images that are provoking God to jealousy in the church. He has a godly jealousy over his remnant people. And he's saying, what are you doing, worshiping and doing things the way Babylon is doing? That provokes jealousy among me. Why do you have all these idols in the house of God and in your life and in the secrets of your life? And why do you think that you won't face the judgment someday when you're living in the judgment hour of earth's history? And how is it that you have turned from the worship of the true Messiah to a Babylonian Messiah that is not the Jesus of Scripture? Because when you do all of those things, if you are on that pathway, you will certainly be like those 20 25 elders who worship the Son or who receive the mark of the beast by accepting Sunday worship. Jesus is doing a work from the most holy place. He is trying to seal his people with the seal of the living God. And yet there's all these abominations in the church. Now, lest you think that everybody had fallen prey to this, Ellen White then quotes, we read the quote from Testimonies, Volume 5, page 207. She quotes the first seven verses of Ezekiel chapter 9, which shows that those who sigh and cry for the abominations in the midst of the land will have a mark in their foreheads. This is not the mark of the beast. This is the seal of God. Because they were the faithful who saw the abominations, and they are sighing and crying for the abominations. Now notice, when they're sighing and crying, it's because their hearts are broken. They don't have the spirit of Satan saying, we are going to destroy you, you wicked Adamus, who are doing all these things. Their hearts are broken as they speak out for the abominations that are in the land. Now, you may wonder where I'm going with this, but I found an interesting connection with sighing and crying. And it's in the context of Isaiah 58. Because sometimes we think that we should just post Facebook messages about all the evils in the church, and we've done our job. We're, we're going to get the seal of God because we're pointing out all the error in the church. And yet God has something to say to us. Isaiah chapter 58, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. So Isaiah 58 is a famous chapter. I'm sure here at UG Pines you are very familiar with the fact that Isaiah 58 is the chapter that describes medical missionary work for God's people before Jesus comes back. But it starts off with the command to cry aloud 
and spare not, to lift up our voice like a trumpet, to show God's people their transgression, the house of Jacob their sins. Yes, we need to be calling sin by its right name. But how do we do it? What are we calling out? Verse 2, Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They delight in approaching God. So God is saying, okay, you're going to be pointing out sin among people who seek me daily, who want to know the way of God, who come to church, they want to do righteousness, and notice verse 3, Wherefore have we fasted, they say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? These are people who are living in the day of atonement. They are fasting and afflicting their souls, and they're saying, God, do you not notice how we're fasting and afflicting our souls? Behold, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and exact all your labors. Now notice verse 4. And boy, is this so true of the church. Behold, you fast for strife and debate and to smite with a fist of wickedness. i got to tell you, you know, the world church made a decision two years ago about women's ordination, and yet on my Facebook page I have at least one or two people who are still posting posts every day in favor of women's ordination. I'm like, when are you going to stop? Amen. Can't we talk about something else now? Amen. We fast for strife and debate. And to smite with a fist of wickedness, we want to win. We want our side to get the most votes at the next GC session. So we're fasting for strife and debate. And it's not just over women's ordination. You may be having strife and debate over how to arrange the pews in your church or to ha how to have the color of your carpet or how to arrange the order of your Sabbath school service and should you have superintendent's remarks or not. And people get into a whole fight over stuff like that. You shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? So there are some avenues who say, all I need to do is to call out sin in the church, to stand for the truth, and to moan and bemoan how bad the church is, has become. And when God comes, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You sat around on Facebook every day pointing out all the sins in the church. Well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's not what the Bible says, actually. Yes, we point out sin. But that's not all that we do. Verse 6, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor without her cast out of thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Friends, this is medical missionary work. 
And it goes with what we were talking about in the Laodicean message. Jesus stands at the door knocking, saying, let me come in, and if you let me come in, I will eat with you. And then we see, I was hungry and you fed me, naked and you clothed me, sick and, and, and in prison and you visited me. This is how we feed Jesus, by doing medical missionary work. This is the fast that God has chosen for us, because humanly speaking, it's easier to just take care of ourselves and of our friends and family than it is to go out and to help those who are afflicted. Amen. This is the fast that God has chosen for us. Testimonies, volume 6, page 289. The union that should exist between the medical missionary work and the ministry is clearly set forth in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. There is wisdom and blessing for those who will engage in the work as here presented. This chapter is explicit and there is in it enough to enlighten anyone who wishes to do the will of God. It presents abundant opportunity to minister to suffering humanity and at the same time to be an instrument in God's hands of bringing the light of truth before a perishing world. Amen. Now notice what happens when we do the work that God has asked us to do in the Day of Atonement. When we choose to accept the fast that God has called upon us to do in the Day of Atonement. It's not just to sit around in sackcloth and ashes and say, oh, the church is bad, the church is bad, look at all these evils. No, there is more to it than that. We are to cry aloud and despair not, and I would dare say that one of the things we need to be calling out one of the sins we need to be calling out in the church is that we as a church are not doing medical missionary work. We're fasting for strife and debate and to smite with a fist of wickedness and we need to be crying aloud and saying, why aren't we following the command of Isaiah 58? When we do what God has called us to do in Isaiah 58, verse 8 says, then shall thy light break forth as the morning and thine health shall spring forth speedily and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rear guard. That's the loud cry of Revelation 18. That is when the latter rain is poured out upon God's people and the earth is lightened with its glory because, listen, you're not going to receive the outpouring of the latter rain just because you've stopped doing bad things in your life. Well, I've stopped doing all those bad things. Now I'm ready for the outpouring of the latter rain. No, you're reflecting the character of Jesus and Jesus was the best medical missionary that there ever was. So don't think that you're going to lighten the earth with the glory of God's character in your life if you're not living out Isaiah 58. Amen. Yes, you've stopped doing bad things. Good for you. But that's only one part of the equation. Mm -hmm. It's having the character of Jesus in your life to be a blessing to those who are in need. And then you will be prepared to receive the outpouring of the latter rain to give the loud cry message. And then it says in verse 9, Then you shall call and the Lord shall answer. You shall cry and he shall say, Here I am. Mm -hmm. And then it talks about how our light will rise from obscurity. And then we get to the Sabbath message at the end and people will say, what's that Sabbath thing that you were talking about? Because you've helped me with my personal needs. Praise the Lord. And, we, and so we oftentimes get things backwards. Well, and look, I'm not criticizing evangelism. Most churches have stopped doing evangelism. They need to start doing it again. But what happens is we'll do evangelistic messages and we'll get to the Sabbath and I've been to a meeting where it's like we're just kind of going along and then all of a sudden 
the Sabbath message comes, and then all of these nice first-day Christians are like, oh, okay, we see what you guys are all about. You're just trying to get us to change the day we worship on, and they never come back. But when we do medical missionary work then the Sabbath message has relevance to the people that we have helped. Praise the Lord. So a lot of times, the only thing Adventists know about Isaiah 58 is verses 12, 13, and 14, and they miss the whole point of the chapter. The Sabbath message is connected to medical missionary work. Now get this, we understand that the Sabbath is the seal of God. And we're talking about how the sealing message, or the, the servants of God, the four winds are being held back until the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads, and only those who sigh and cry for the abominations will receive the seal of God in their foreheads. But those who are sighing and crying for the abominations are pointing out that Adventism isn't doing medical missionary work. Do you see that? Yes. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. Well, what are the sins in Adventism that Isaiah 58 lists? It's that we're fasting for strife and debate and not doing medical missionary work. So if we're sighing and crying, we will be pointing out that medical missionary work needs to be taking place in the church. And when we do the medical missionary work, we are sighing and crying, but we're doing the work. Then we receive the seal of God because we also have the experience of the Sabbath. And I've said this earlier. Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 283, in order for men to keep the Sabbath holy, they must themselves be holy. When we have an experience with Jesus all week long, the Sabbath will be a, a special day that is a sign that we have settled into the truth intellectually and spiritually. And it will be a sign that because we are living a holy life, we are living the life of Jesus, that we are living to be a blessing to others, including the poor and the downtrodden. That is what Jesus is trying to do from the most holy place. Jesus is doing a work of trying to seal his people. And this week is about raising the right arm. That arm needs to be raised because in order for God's people to receive the seal of the living God, we will be doing medical missionary work so that our light will go forth as the morning and our health shall spring forth speedily and our righteousness shall go before us. That will be a sign that we have received the outpouring of the latter rain and have received the seal of God so that the earth will be lightened with the glory of God. And I close with a statement which I've referenced in the past. It's Christ Object Lessons, page 384. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to bless others springs forth constantly from within. That's the seal of God. When you have the completeness of Christian character, you're going to be sealed with the seal of the living God, and you're, you have this impulse to bless others constantly. That's the work of Isaiah 58. That's the character of Jesus. That is the sign that we are ready to be sealed. So when you study the book of Revelation, you see in the seven churches, Jesus is saying, let me come in because I'm not in your life. When we let him come in, we feed him, which means that we're feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and those who are in prison. And when we come to the seals, we see that as we attain to completeness of Christian character, we are doing the work of medical missionary work by blessing others constantly. So when you look at the sanctuary message in the book of Revelation, medical missionary work is tied to it completely. 
God has given us a message, friends. Amen. And we are here at this time of Earth's history to receive the seal of the living God and by His grace to do the work that He has given us to do. And I pray that we will not be like those people in Ezekiel who had idols in their life and were worshiping a false messiah, provoking the jealousy of God, setting themselves up to receive the mark of the beast. May we be like those in Isaiah 58 who do the work of the Lord and proclaim the Sabbath message at the time of the coming of Jesus so that the character of Christ will be seen in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Let's kneel. Father in heaven, we thank you for showing us your plan for our lives. May we be sighing and crying for the abominations. May we be praying for those who are deceived. But may we not just be sighing and crying about bad things, but may we also be doing the work that you have given us to do, to go out and to be a blessing to others. Help us to not just be a checklist thing where it's like, uh-oh, I better do medical missionary work or I'm not going to go to heaven. Okay, I'm doing it now, God. Do you see what I'm doing? Help us to not have that experience. Help us to have a natural desire to want to be a blessing to others to have the right spirit as we work to be a blessing to others. Thank you for this message that you've given to us as a people. May we take it to heart. Forgive us for where we've fallen short. And may we be ready when you come, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.